I've got Rick Gates here. I uh, appreciate you being on the opening broadcast of Unite and Heal America. You were out front and center of the Trump 2016 campaign, also in the Mueller investigation that followed. Then you wrote a book about it, your experience, The Wicked Game, an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. I've read the whole book from cover to cover and thought it uh, raised some interesting points. And I'm glad to have you uh, here to ask you some questions about what came up during the book, uh, reading the book, and more broadly ask you about some of your experiences before ever getting involved in President Trump's 2016 campaign, as well as your thoughts on how the Republican Party has been essentially taken over by Trump and Trumpism since 2016. Matt, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much for having me. Um, it's interesting when we look at uh, the Republican Party today under Trump and when we started, uh, you know, Mr. Trump's campaign in 2016, it was a very different situation. Back then, the party was very much uh, against an outsider. They were very much against Donald Trump. You could see that in every debate, every meeting, every instance where Donald Trump started to gain traction. And what we saw from, you know, behind the scenes was a Republican Party that was very entrenched in established traditions and did not anticipate an outsider coming in and winning the presidency. And what really we saw was really the same catalyst that you saw in the 2020 election and that there was a sentiment from people that they were tired of politics and politicians. So as a result, this guy, this idea of an outsider coming in was very fresh. It was very new and people wanted to give uh, an outsider an opportunity. So, you know, all throughout that process, we had obstacle after obstacle. And, you know, throughout, you know, President Trump's administration, that same process applied. And I think, you know, as we move forward in history, we'll be able to look back and really determine what Donald Trump brought to the presidency and how he literally upended the Republican Party. And now, actually is the leader of the party, even after, you know, most people believe he's been defeated uh, in the 2020 election. This is very unusual situation. Most of the time, a party leader who's been defeated kind of moves on and goes away. The exact opposite with President Trump. I mean, he is going to be here for a defined period of time moving forward. And I think you're likely going to see him make an announcement that he's going to run for election again in 2024 as well. Well, let's follow up on that point. Uh, most people think he's been defeated. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Uh, do you feel he's been defeated? I feel that he's been defeated in a fraudulent election, yes. Um, and, and I want to be very clear because I know there's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, a lot of people uh, have uh, kind of, you know, put a, a definition of fraud. For me, fraud is fraud, whether it's 10 votes or 10 million votes. The fact that we had it in this election gives rise to a lot of the rhetoric that has been going, a lot of the requests that have been made to do investigations, audits, uh, and other activity related to really getting to the root of it. What we've had is fraud for decades in this country. And at the end of the day, we just never paid attention to it because it hasn't really mattered. In the 2020 race, it was very close. It meant a lot. So look, any American should want to get to the full bottom of the details so that we have uh, an, a process full of integrity and legitimacy. And right now that does not exist. So until let's, we can clear the air on this, we need to we need to you know dig deeper. Well, let's just take this uh, inch by inch. So if you're saying it's a fraudulent election, was there sufficient fraud to sway the outcome? Outcome. Uh, Attorney General Barr had said that he did not, after the Justice Department and the FBI investigated, did not find 
sufficient information to show that it would have changed the results of the election. Do you believe that the attorney generals and the FBI's findings were not accurate? And if so, please point to specific instances where that would support your case. Sure. First, I'd say they're incomplete uh, versus inaccurate. And I think uh, we need to look at, you know, a lot of their findings. Look again, what uh, Bill Barr did, you know, particularly on the way out is the press conference he did right before he left office. He actually admitted that there was fraud in the elections. Now, to your point, yes, he said there was not a systemic level of fraud that would have changed the result of the election. But, you know, as as one opinion of many Americans, for me, fraud is fraud. If we don't have a fair process, then we need to make sure the process is transparent and free and fair. And we got to fix that first and foremost. So when you go through each individual state, Sure, we could dedicate, you know, probably an entire day to going through each state, talking about dead people that voted, uh, you know, people that have moved away from the state uh, that actually filed two ballots, uh, you know, one in one state, one in another. Uh, we can talk about, you know, a host of other uh, fraudulent activity that that took place. But again, for me personally, the fraud is the fraud. We need to take a much deeper look at this and make sure that we're, uh, you know, giving legitimacy to these elections. And you know, the interesting thing, you know, Matt, that's going on right now. You you don't see a decrease in the number of people that believe there was fraud in the election. You're actually seeing an increase. And that increase is now crossed over where Democrats actually believe that there was fraud in the election. They're just not going to argue about it because obviously their guy won. Well, I guess uh, taking Georgia for an example, and, and uh, Georgia has a Republican secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, and a governor there who's a Republican, and they investigated this. The secretary of state found two dead people had voted. So, yes, that occurred, but it was insubstantial and it's not going to change the results. So, yes, in a country where there are 150 million votes cast, will there be some instances of fraud? I mean, you can't squeeze all of it out of the system where there's zero. But I think that we've gotten to the point where it's reliable. And like President Trump had stated that, oh, he won Georgia by 400,000 votes. Well, that is clearly false. I mean, there's no way he won it by 400,000 votes. Do you believe that he won it by 400,000 votes? No, I don't believe he won by 4,000 votes. I do believe 400, that he won. Exactly. 400,000. Yeah. So, you know, but given the small margin of just over 11,000 votes, I mean, that and you raised the perfect example. And to some extent, I agree with you. You know, there were a number of actions taken by the secretary of state of Georgia and the governor that were looking into the election fraud. You had recounts. Well, the recounts don't work if you actually don't do an audit. So after they did three recounts, they finally agreed to do a partial audit. And within that partial audit, they did find fraud. Again, they wouldn't go into detail about how much, but it was enough to expand the audit to a uh, more representative uh, piece of Georgia. Uh, and, and, and then the, the thing that was, I think, most interesting is I did not realize this until recently, but the Trump campaign has requested a lot of the information that the Georgia secretary of state alleged to have to say that, hey, we investigated this and we found no fraud, but they wouldn't provide any of that information to either of the campaign. Well, my problem with that is if we're going to do that, we need to be as transparent as possible so that the election is as legitimate as possible. Well, and that's think, exactly what we didn't have in Georgia. Well, do you think that uh, Brad Raffensperger found evidence of systemic fraud that would have elected President Trump and he's withholding it as the Republican secretary of state? I mean, that seems a little bit unbelievable. I mean, I could 
maybe believe that, hey, a Democrat might feel partisanly affiliated with Biden, but uh, Raffensperger certainly isn't. Right. And I, I agree. I don't think like, for example, the Dominion uh, issues. Uh, I still think, you know, there needs to be a thorough investigation. I don't think people have enough information to really draw, you know, uh, conclusions about that at this time. I think that needs to be investigated further. Was there enough fraud in Georgia? Georgia is a very unique situation because the vote count was only by 11,000. So if, if we go back and we do an entire audit of the mail-in ballots of Georgia, just start with that. Do, a, do an audit of the mail-in ballots. I think you'll be surprised at how many fraudulent ballots you actually find. Well, see, that to me is uh, speculation on your part that you you believe that you're going to find all this fraud and that it is going to tip the balance of power. Um, you know, you're you're speculating. You don't know that. I mean, now I can see you're saying you want that to happen, but you can't say in advance you know that the result is going to be President Trump wins. Yeah, that I that's speculation. Um, yes. And in That's the, why we in need the to law, have that in the law, we, we, we object to that and say that calls for speculation because you don't have that information. President Trump doesn't have that information. And see, that's the problem that I have with President Trump speculating widely, saying, hey, I won. If he said, let's look at this, let's investigate it, let's audit it, that's a reasonable statement. Saying, I won and there was fraud involved. That's improper because he has no factual basis to show that he won and that fraud was involved because it, it, he's saying he hasn't audited it. So how can he know that there was fraud involved? Well, and that's exactly the point. Let's get the facts. Let's get the evidence. There are barriers by each state that don't permit campaigns to actually thoroughly get that evidence. And that's the point I'm making about Georgia. Raffensperger has more information. He just hasn't shared that information with the general public. Part of it, they say it's you know due to the Privacy Act. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you're this close in an election and a state so critical, why wouldn't you want to be transparent and open across the board? Why do we have so many hidden secrets, you know, within our state and federal government about not sharing information with the people that deserve well, to see it? Well, I absolutely believe in transparency, and I, I'm, I certainly have no objection to transparency. I think this election had observers all over the place. There were lawyers and observers all up and down the state of Georgia and, and all over the 50 states. So there were lots of eyes on this and lots of very senior Republicans like Pat Toomey, a senator from Pennsylvania, said, hey, there wasn't systemic fraud in Pennsylvania, but President Trump still isn't accepting the result there. There's no reason why Senator Toomey is, is saying that to benefit Joe Biden. So that's the problem I have is that, uh, you know, allegations of systemic fraud are made without evidence. Hey, we've had two months to gather facts and we still haven't seen facts that support these contentions that President Trump is making. Now, uh, we've got to cut for a commercial break, but uh, we'll be right back with Brad Gates and a chance to talk to him a little bit more about his book and some of the political things that are going on right now. Matt Mattern here with Unite and Heal America with 
Brad Gates and wanted to talk to you about what is happening on the Capitol Hill today with people taking over the U.S. Capitol. And isn't this in part incited by or certainly encouraged by President Trump? Look, what's happened today on Capitol Hill is absolutely unacceptable. The violence cannot be tolerated. But I want to take two approaches to it. You know, the sentiment that you have seen today is in large part the exact sentiment that gave a rise to President Trump's presidency. And that is the anger among the people over politics and politicians. And it's very prevalent. It's very pervasive. And this is where the American people have felt like they have not been able to get their voice heard. The media has obviously been a, a huge culprit in that, you know, of late. And as a result of all that, it has created the sentiment in these people. Now, it doesn't justify any type of violence. Peaceful protest is exactly what we should, you know, adhere to. Uh, do I believe that the president instigated this? Absolutely not. Any more than I do believe Joe Biden instigated, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, you know, protest. Everybody makes their own choice and their own decision. The president as commander in chief and as a president has a very strong voice, a very strong rhetoric, but everybody's known that. He, he, the one thing about Donald Trump is he's not changed since he started running for election in 2016. Well, does, this, like do, does this do any damage to our democracy, this storming of the Capitol and interrupting a major vote on who is going to be president and the, the counting of the electoral college votes? Yeah, it certainly disrupts the process. I was very much looking forward, uh, honestly, as a student of politics to see all this unfold. I, I love to see our democracy in action. I love to see the Constitution tested. It's never been tested to this length before. I think we were going to see a lot of interesting things come out of that debate. You know, Senator Ted Cruz had outlined a number of key points that he was going to walk through. And I just think it would have been great as a exercise in democracy for the American people and, and the people around the global community to see. So from that perspective, I am disappointed that it was disrupted, you know, by, by individual protesters. With that said, that is democracy in action in itself, right? I mean, these people wanted to be heard. They felt they were being suppressed by politics and politicians, and they chose to, you know, come up to Capitol Hill and, and make their presence known. My opinion went a little too far, but, you know, we are where we are and, and we got to deal with it moving forward. Well, I'd say more than a little bit too far. I mean, storming the Capitol and breaking things and coming in to disrupt a vote of the United States uh, Congress is a little more than normal free speech rights, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, look, but it's no different than Antifa Black Lives Matter protests all over the country. You know, those went, you know, well across the line as well. And I think, Matt, what it shows is exactly where we are, you know, in America today. And we are, are very divided. But the difference is we're divided emotionally on political issues. And I think, you know, as Americans, we've lost the art to be able to have political discussions with one another and listen and learn from each other. You and I may disagree on points, but that doesn't mean we can't have a discussion and talk about it. And at the end of the day, agree to disagree, but still have an engaging and polite discussion where we're sharing ideas. And maybe I learned something from you that I didn't know before. That, that has completely been lost on America for a very long time, well in advance of you know, Donald Trump running for office. Uh, but, it, it, you know, his his election was able to take that sentiment and really bring it out into the uh, into the open for, you know, all Americans to see. Now, I, I would imagine you're not going to agree with this, but I see Trump as a tragically flawed figure. I mean, that uh, where you say in your book that Trump speaks hyperbolically and where I come hyperbolically, we would call it dishonesty. I mean, in the Midwest, we just say he's lying to us. He doesn't seem to have a regard for the truth. And to me, that's a that's a disqualifying factor for somebody who's leading the country. We need to have somebody that we can trust. And when they say, hey, it's this way, 
it's this way. Is anybody perfect? No. But I think there's a rigorousness. I mean, the party of Lincoln was based upon a man, President Lincoln, who was very honest. I mean, that was his moniker. And now we've got somebody who who does not believe in that as a method of transacting the country's business. Well, look, first and foremost, I, I agree. We're, we're all flawed, right? And so, uh, you know, all of us uh, fall short of, of what it means, means to be a perfect person. Uh, with that said, if you're going to apply that same kind of litmus across the board, then, you know, that would, you know, basically discount the entirety of Congress and probably most people inside of government. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem we have now is we don't even know what the truth is. That barometer has been so shattered. I mean, I, I could turn on CNN and, you know, Newsmax. And I'd listen to both. and I couldn't tell you, you know, what's truth and what's fiction. Uh, and that's, again, a very unfortunate for us to be in as a country. And I think we need to find, you know, a way out of that. I would love to see. Here's a great idea. Why don't we hold Congress to, to that same standard that you just mentioned? Why don't we, you know, put every member of Congress under oath every time they speak publicly? I guarantee you that'll change the rhetoric and the discourse from a lot of these members on both sides of the aisle. I'm not saying it's one or the other. It's both. No question about it. Well, I I agree that people, congressmen and in particular, need to watch what they say. But I I believe that President Trump was well beyond normal in his disregard for the truth. But he is a function of a broken system, in my humble opinion. But, uh, you know, you talked about dysfunction, division, hatred in America. And isn't it true that President Trump has exacerbated some of these trends with his actions and his extreme rhetoric and we could go on with lots of examples, uh, such as good people on both sides in Charlottesville and um, you know, making comments about the Mexican-American judge who was hearing the case against the uh, Trump University and saying that he was going to be biased against him. You know, things like that that just are very divisive. You know, it's hard to support somebody who uh, who speaks that way. Why can you still support him through all that? Well, look, absolutely. And, and, and it's a great question and it's a fair question. And I think when you look at uh, the way that he's treated his, the entirety of his campaign, as I said from the beginning, everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew what they were getting. And, and whether you like his rhetoric or don't, uh, he, the two things that he prided himself on is that he was not politically correct and he is not presidential. He never wanted to be a politician. And I absolutely would think you would agree that he's checked all those boxes. And, and from, from that standpoint, he, he maintained the same path. Now, did he exasperate it to some extent? Absolutely. That is part of who he is. Uh, what he liked to do is he liked to formulate uh, his opinion about an issue and then go out and message around that. Most politicians, they want to know what the people are thinking, and then they come back and they try to do their messaging around that, which is in large part why many of them haven't had strong convictions. But there's one misnomer that you know I want to make sure we get out there. And you know, a lot of people say you know Trump created the chaos uh, that we're in now. And I, I do absolutely disagree with that. And, and, and we've had chaos for decades. The chaos has always been there. Uh, have there been moments where he has absolutely exasperated it? Of course, uh, that's part of who he is as a person. And when he brings out some of that, uh, it's, it's, you know, there are people that were not happy with that uh, as de demonstrated in the 2020 election. But at the end of the day, there was certainly a majority in 2016 that absolutely got behind that because again, they were tired of the system. They were tired of politicians who did nothing for the average American people. And that's what Trump gave rise to. He gave a voice to those people that felt they didn't have a voice before. You're on KABC uh, 790 with Matt Matter. I'm here talking with Brad Gates, and uh, we're talking about both his recent book, Wicked Game, which is about politics in America and his experience. 
uh, wanted to kind of pivot to the Mueller investigation and, and how you got caught up in that. Uh, I realize it's uh, it's a bit of a long story, but there's some things in there. You you bring a different perspective to it, obviously, because you were actually involved in it on the ground and felt the weight of a prosecution that uh, you didn't feel like was fair. But certainly at the end of the day, you did plead to some some offenses and, you know, Maybe you can give us your take on how that went down and the most important things that are takeaways from you coming out of that investigation. Sure. I think the first uh, and most important takeaway is that, you know, in my own experiences, and I, I know other people have had the shared experience that the justice system is broken as well as the political system. And in some ways, the justice system is even more broken. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was unfortunate to have to look at it, you know, from the inside out. Uh, but I will tell you without a doubt. And, and look, we know a lot more today than we did three years ago uh, when all this started. Um, and this is a great example of what we were talking about earlier about transparency. There is so much dishonesty by individuals uh, within our government agencies uh, that it is just unfathomable that they were able to get away with some of the things that they did. And we can go through you know, specific details as I, I do in the book. But just to give you a couple that some of the tactics that they used, uh, you know, Illegal, probably not. Unethical, absolutely. But they, you know, these prosecutors under Bob Mueller, they were driving toward one mission, and that was to remove uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, there's no question about it. You look at the, the rhetoric of a lot of these prosecutors today, uh, there's no question they're biased. Uh, you know, so this idea that we go back and say, oh, I can do my job, you know, as a government official and not be politically motivated, that's absolutely absurd. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to look at our system and see where it's broken. And look, more information's coming out. You know, John Durham uh, has been given special special ca- uh, counsel status. Um, how many times do we, does the Department of Justice actually set up an investigation to investigate the investigators? So I think, you know, based on, uh, you know, some of the information that's come out, President Trump has done a great job at one thing, that's declassifying documents. Uh, it, it certainly gives me motivation to encourage other presidents to do it as well. And I think past presidents should have done it. Um, we, we are losing sight of, of being able to be transparent uh, within our government. And that's what's created this whole idea of, you know, Matt, particularly over the last four years of where there was just an attack, attack, attack against President Trump. And, you know, whether, you, again, you like him or not, there, you could absolutely agree that this is that there's no president's been attacked on more issues than him uh, in, a, in a presidential administration. And what we have found out about the Mueller probe now, um, you know, in my, my own words, you know, for me, it was the it was the greatest crime perpetrated by Americans against Americans on American soil. And I think as we move forward in time, more information is going to come out. The historical record is going to be uh, much different than it was three years ago when, you know, certain individuals inside government decided that, hey, there was collusion with Russia when not one single instance, you know, was was promoted. Uh, But as a result of all that, a number of us were used as pawns to get to Donald Trump. And uh, as the record shows, there was absolutely, I mean, look, I worked with him on the campaign from 2016. I knew nothing about his business affairs, what he had done in the 80s, the 90s. You know, all I could comment, you know, was on on the political nature of the work uh, and his uh, campaign. And it had nothing to do with Russians. I was there front and center and there was absolutely no collusion. And the FBI said the same thing. Rick, uh, I'm going to have to get back to this after we get back from the break. Uh, I'm here with Rick Gates. We're talking about the Wicked Game. We're on uh, AM 790. This is Matt Mattern. We're on the show Unite and Heal America. So we'll be back in just a minute.
this is Matt Matter. I'm back talking with Rick Gates about The Wicked Game, his book about an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. Rick, uh, wanted to get back to you about how you actually got involved with Paul Manafort getting hired by Trump in 2016. And one of the big questions I had was Manafort volunteered for this job. And my understanding was that was not getting paid by the Trump campaign to come in and do that work. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. That kind of struck me as a bit odd because just generally in business, uh, you guys are, are consultants. You want to get paid for your work. Why would you come in and take on such an enormous task and not get paid for it? Yeah, there's actually a very good and simple answer to that. And if you look at historically at uh, where Paul Manafort came in the context of presidential elections, um, he had worked on a number of presidential campaigns through the years. uh, But there was a period of time when he did not work on in U.S. politics and he was doing a lot of work internationally. And one of the opportunities, you know, when uh, Donald Trump decided to run uh, and Paul had a number of uh, former colleagues that were also looking at supporting Trump, um, it was an opportunity for Paul to get back into American politics. And it's actually not very uncommon for people at that level to volunteer. There are plenty of volunteers, uh, you know, in other presidential administrations. Um, it's usually, you know, the line staff that, you know, need the, uh, the basic salaries, you know, to get by. Uh, but somebody that had, you know, done as much work as Paul, he was there. He knew what to do. And frankly, Donald Trump had a much different approach to campaign. He self-financed. Uh, well, you know, I, guess, everybody- I guess I had the, a follow-up question to that, which is, wasn't it true that uh, Manafort and I guess you as well, because you're working with Manafort, were having some financial challenges because work was drying up in the Ukraine and or it seemed as though there were financial stressors on Manafort at that time? Correct. Yes, that's correct. I, I document that in the book, and that was um, uh, related to the international work uh, where the uh, political parties that Paul had been working for um, had severed and split, um, and so he was trying to realign that. But at the same time, he also had an interest in getting back involved in uh, U.S. politics as well. And the presidential cycle presented a great opportunity. And one of the things I kind of wanted to ask you about was this Deripaska, Olga Oleg Deripaska, who had sued you and Paul Manafort on a couple of different occasions, one in a 2018 lawsuit where Deripaska had alleged that $18.9 million that was meant to invest in a Ukrainian TV venture, the Black Sea Cable Company, had vanished. What's the status of that case? Has that been resolved? Yeah. Yeah, so that that case is, uh, from my understanding, still ongoing. It's been put on hiatus um, because of a lot of the activity related to uh, Paul's other case. Um, And I don't know if that will resurface or not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that was a you know period of time where, and look, I was there front and center. Uh, there was no wrongdoing at all. It was at the time of the Ukraine of the world market, if you recall, in 2008, uh, was upended uh, economically and financially. Uh, and it created st- extreme hardship uh, on the company. And I'm sure we don't want to get into all the details of a Ukrainian cable company. Uh, but absolutely, you know, I was uh, deposed for a, a case along that line uh, and, and provided, you know, factual information, truthful information on that. And there was nothing nefarious about it. Paul and, and Oleg had a longstanding relationship. Uh, and it's my understanding that they worked some of that out. Um, and as I learned, you know, through the Mueller investigation, which was, I thought, fascinating, is that, you know, Oleg had actually been working with U.S. authorities. Uh, in one specific instance, he was working with the FBI to recover uh, an American, you know, agent. 
uh, and he uh, financed the whole operation, was helping the Americans because the Americans couldn't get into Iran, where uh, Oleg had business there and was able to do so. So, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that, you know, you're, you're raising that is interesting for me personally, because there's a lot of it that I didn't know about until the Mueller investigation. And there's a lot more links between government agencies and a lot of the foreign participants uh, that, you know, we were involved with that were actually working with the United States government at the time. Certainly, uh, it's it's useful to get that information. But one of the things that you didn't discuss in the book, which I thought was kind of an important fact for a reader to know, was that uh, there was a $10 million a year contract with Manafort's company and Deripaska for a lobbying project that Manafort had said, quote, would greatly benefit the Putin government. And that was entered into in 2006. So, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And look, as of everything, you know, with the media particularly, uh, it's either taken out of a context or a lot of the details are not provided. That contract went specifically for an organization that Oleg had an idea to set up to help former Soviet countries enter into uh, democratic uh, values, democratic standards, hold free and fair elections. And that was not just within Eastern Europe, but it expanded, you know, into parts of Asia. And the idea is even in, you know, Eastern Europe, for example, a former communist bloc countries, a lot of the individuals in those countries are actually big believers in capitalism and democracy because democracy promotes stability. And that is something a lot of those countries never had. So when everybody, the media descended on this contract, they made it look like, oh, you know, Paul was taking 10 million from Oleg for nefarious purposes. Nobody ever got into the details of going through the entity that was set up, some of the countries that had been worked on, the democratic campaigns that were uh, being waged in those countries. And I I think it's just a disservice that, you know, people don't want to look into all the details. They just want to, you know, often look at what the media is putting out there, particularly if it's political, because most times in political stuff, you're either on one side or the other. And uh, and I just think that, you know, to, to the whole point of your show, you know, we got to find a way to be able to come to the middle ground and be balanced on a lot of these issues, uh, including how we look at, you know, you know, individuals that are doing this type of work. Well, absolutely. And I, I think there are shades of gray here. And, and, and certainly you make some points in the book as to uh, President Obama's potential mistakes in handling the Ukraine and maybe driving the Ukraine into the arms of the Russians a little bit by not supporting the Ukraine more around 2013, 2014. And certainly that's a legitimate criticism of them, uh, or certainly at least something we should look at. We should have a discussion about, and we should take these relationships seriously, though I did find fault in the way you presented Trump's dealings with the current president of the Ukraine and kind of sloughing that off, saying ah, it's no big deal that he was essentially saying, hey, we're going to hold up $400 million of military aid to you unless you say you're going to announce there's an investigation against uh, Joe Biden. And to me, that's wrong. He's using the power of the presidency to attack a political rival. I don't I don't see how you can support that. What's your Well, on that on that point, there are a number of instances in every presidential administration. Why did we find out about that? In large part, because President Trump himself declassified those cables and those transcripts. Why hasn't any other president done that? You know, we certainly know. I would I would stop you there and say we found out of it because there was a whistleblower who reported it and then it became public. I mean, it wasn't. 
Right. You found it wasn't it, it wasn't President Trump, Trump saying, hey, I did this, by the way. No, I, that's, no, no, I'm not saying he stepped up and said this is what I did. He actually presented the transcript that people could read for themselves. And I think that's a function of I would love every president to do that. I think the American people need well, to I think that, that that's talking about process more than the actual mechanics of what happened and the substance of it. And the substance of it was he was using the power of the U.S. presidency and the U.S. government to influence a government to benefit him by attacking his political rival, Joe Biden. To me, that's the problem. Right. But, it's surprising. It, it, you seem shocked by that, like as if this is the first. No, time it's I, I'm not saying that it, it shocks me in terms of the government of the United States has never done anything nefarious, but it's wrong. So the point you're trying to then make is is a classic kind of President Trump point, which is pointing to other instances of misconduct and saying, well, that's a reason to get away from it. It's like I robbed a bank, but that guy killed somebody. You know, you sure. let's just look at the bank robbery first and then, you know, the, the other stuff will sort itself out. But uh, yeah, I no, do want to let you know that I read your book and I actually found a, a minor mistake on your page 201. I think you got the date wrong. You said January 29, 2017 was your queen for the day interview. I think that must have been 2018. Exactly right. 2018. So, so you, just to give you proof that I did actually read the book, uh, Rick. <laughs> you read it very intently then, because that's there's only one other person that found that. It's since been corrected. But <laughs> yes, that is correct. Well, so pivoting from that to getting back to kind of more current policy issues, uh, is President Trump going to pardon his kids and uh, Jared Kushner and himself? Or is, uh, is that not going to happen? I personally don't believe so. And, and the mere fact is, uh, you know, in a big announcement today, uh, I think will help with that. And that was the appointment of Merrick Garland as the uh, candidate for attorney general. Um, and look, I think with everything going on uh, and a number of Democrats have even said this, you know, in fact, James Comey came out today and said, that, you know, President Trump should not be prosecuted. And at some point we have to stop. I mean, look, as, as somebody that went through the Mueller probe firsthand, uh, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, my worst enemy. And, and and that is not America. What those prosecutors did uh, was wrong. They may have believed in their cause of trying to take, you know, President Trump uh, down, uh, you know, as duly elected from the people, whatever their motivations. Uh, it's very unfortunate that our country went through that. And again, the great thing about the truth is eventually it finds, you know, the surface and it'll take some time. But there's a lot more there to unpack. Um, but you well, know, I, could, I, I could probably talk with you for a few more hours on that subject, but I'm going to I'm going to pivot again to uh, Eric Trump. Trump's tweet today. Uh, you're here with Matt Matter. I'm talking to Rick Gates, who wrote a book, The Wicked Game, and, and we're talking about uh, politics here. Eric Trump's tweet today was, those who don't vote to overturn the election will face the wrath of uh, President Trump, essentially. Is that something that you endorse? Look, I don't necessarily endorse the rhetoric. I endorse the uh, belief that the the, the election uh, in certain states, uh, there was uh, a fraud and we need to get to that. And where the senators are being called to object to, you know, the electoral votes uh, in, in the certification process, I think those issues need to be raised. We're not going to have an opportunity like this again, where the magnifying glass is on our electoral process. 
we're the gold standard for the world. And, and this time around, we have failed miserably uh, in being able to show that we can run elections. I mean, I think somebody jokingly said even Mexico has a voter ID system, uh, an electronic voter ID system. You know, we're still dealing with paper ballots and, and, and you know, uh, postage well, thank, stamps. Thank, thank God we're dealing with paper ballots because then we actually have a record of it and then we don't have an electronic system that could potentially be hacked. So I, I think we should have both to make sure that yeah. we have a backup. Uh, and then, you know, because President Trump would say, oh, they were all hacked and they were all changed. And no, we can go back to the paper ballot and say, hey, they weren't. And here's the evidence of it. So with that, I think we've got another commercial break coming back in a few minutes with uh, Rick Gates on AM790. This is Matt Matter. We're back here on KABC with Matt Matter on Unite and Heal America. I've got Rick Gates here with me, and we're talking about his book, The Wicked Game. And Rick, I uh, just wanted to talk to you about one of the things that you said in your book, that uh, Trump, he always winds up on top. And this was written before the uh, election in November of 2020. So uh, you were, I guess, hopeful that he would win. To me, it doesn't look that way in that the Republican Party lost the House of Representatives in 2018, has now uh, looks like they've lost the Senate with the races in Georgia and lost the presidency. So to me, that's not uh, the winning that uh, President Trump had promised the Republican Party when he came into office. Yeah, look, I mean, you take it historically uh, across lines, you know, presidents in their midterms typically lose seats. Um, you know, in the 2020 election on the House side, you know, Republicans actually did pick up, you know, a number of seats. Um, and, and, and yes, they did lose the Senate. Uh, I think that President Trump, you know, would argue that he, he still won the White House. Uh, and he will stick to that. He certainly believes it. So I, look, I think there are a number of ways you can evaluate it for a guy who's never run a political race in his life and uh, for the first time comes in and wins the presidency. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good track record, you know, from that point of view where, you know, sometimes it takes others 30 or 40 years to get there. Uh, but, you know, look, w w politics, as, as we know, is a very, very, um, you know, cutthroat business. It is very difficult. It's hard. Um, there's a lot of, 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 of backstabbing and, and knives being thrown, uh, you know, uh, in between parties, with parties. Um, and this is part of the nature of it. I hope it changes that, you know, if nothing else, I hope that, you know, from the, the last decade, you know, more than the last four years, but from the last decade, we can start to change course and understand that, you know, we can have those discussions, political discussions with each other and learn something from each other. And, and well, we're I not there. I, I certainly hope that uh, we can get there. I don't see President Trump as being somebody who in any way supported moves in that direction, uh, just because, as you said, Trump being Trump, he is divisive. He is inflammatory. He is somebody who's combative just reflexively at all times versus cooperative and collegial. So that's that's his nature, name calling, that type of thing. I'm hopeful that Joe Biden will bring in some collegiality and and some civility because I think that fosters dialogue. Quite frankly, when you're insulting your opponent, it's very hard to have a civil dialogue. Uh, wouldn't you agree? 
Well, look, I think, you know, in the instance that, uh, you know, uh, over the course of his campaign and his administration and even in the uh, reelect in 2020, he brought a different type of discourse. Now, again, you may agree or disagree with it, but at the end of the day, he gave rise to over 74 million people that felt that they didn't have a voice. And, you know, when all the pollsters said, you know, it was going to be a blue landslide, Trump's going to get demolished, you know, they were absolutely wrong. And, and, and why they were wrong, Matt, is because people in, in D.C., it is a bubble. It is a swamp. They don't know what the people out in Kansas or Iowa or, you know, even Texas or New Mexico are thinking. They lose touch with what the average American voter, what really matters to them. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit, I, when I campaigned in 2016, went to Iowa, it was like a reopening of my eyes into who the real American voters are. And I think that's part of the problem with Congress is those guys, you know, and, and ladies all get lost in being in D.C. and they forget why they're there and what they're supposed to be doing. So you may not agree with the rhetoric that, that President Trump has, but it certainly brings a different type of style and perspective. And nobody can disagree with the ability of somebody to come in and basically take over a well-established, you know, traditional Republican Party and, and bring uh, uh momentum to it that the party has not seen in decades. Yeah, well, I, I'm all for shaking things up a little bit and and uh, upsetting the status quo to the extent that it's uh, it's not working for everybody. Great. But I think there's a way to do it that doesn't hurt what we have that does work. And American democracy, for all its faults, has generally worked in large measure. And President Trump, I think, because of his nature of being so, in my mind, so self-centered that he would be willing to tear down democracy in order to help himself. And I think that's the big problem that I find with President Trump. Look, I, you saw my book, and I think this is important to note, and I know a lot of people would probably agree with you. Uh, and there's one thing that, you know, in, in my time with Donald Trump that, you know, I, I learned very quickly is there is, look, first and foremost, he ran because he loves his country. I truly believe that. Again, you can debate the tactics and the rhetoric and all that stuff, but at the core, the reason he ran was because he loves this country. And, and that means a lot in, in, to a lot of people. Now, the way he did it, the tactics, the process, sure, all up for debate. But at the end of the day, when you have that at the core, that matters. But a lot of times people didn't see that because of the rhetoric, because of the tweets. And I think that's unfortunate because, again, this is a person, you know, when you're in politics, candidates typically are, in a, to a large extent, like puppets. You know, they, they go along with what their advisors and consultants tell them, you know, they create the messages, they're out, they, they, they communicate the message. Donald Trump was the exact opposite. He knew exactly what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And then that's what he messaged on. And it upset a lot of people and it upset a lot of people in the Republican Party and a lot of traditional Republican voters. But well, to your point, we needed something like that to shake up the system because nothing else has worked. My question then is, how do we walk away from this point we're at right now or move forward from this point we're at right now in a healthy way, particularly when President Trump is vowing that he is going to stay involved and possibly run in 2024 when he isn't going to probably change his ways at all in terms of insulting, divisive rhetoric? Well, look, first, I think it's an interesting question, because up to this point, if he had won re-election, obviously he believes the way that he has done things has worked. Um, but now with the advent of the 2020 election, if things turn out the way it looks like, um, you know, and he's not reelected, then he is going to have to do some soul searching to determine whether or not uh, he wants to change his course and how he's going to do that. You know, one of the interesting statistics that's kind of come up is if you look at his base of support, you know, within the Republican Party, 
it's it's largely rural. And, and so a lot of the suburbanites have kind of shifted and, and gone more to the middle. How does he win those people back? Because he's certainly going to need them if he's going to run for, you know, uh, the presidency again in 2024. He's going to have to determine whether or not he's going to change his tactics in order to be able to reach more people. Uh, I mean, we don't have to get into it, but, you know, the COVID was a good example. The pandemic offered a lot of opportunities uh, for the president uh, to message to people in the country on certain things. And as his former campaign manager said, which I thought was a pretty interesting point, is at that point, you know, President Trump felt it was more important to keep the economy open. Uh, Keeping the economy open would help more people over the long term. He felt that was the right path to reelection, where a lot of people felt he should have been more empathetic. Now, we can always go back in, in hindsight, you know, with any uh, presidential campaign and, and, and play 2020 in terms of what, you know, people should have done or candidates should have done. But at the end of the day, you know, that did create a, a, a division within the Republican Party, right. uh, particularly in some demographics uh, that didn't support him this time around. Right. I mean, he just couldn't help himself. I mean, quite frankly, if if he had played it as a an empathetic politician caring about people more than about the business profits in the short term, uh, he certainly would have done better. And I think that it was a, a crisis that he was swamped by in part because he's not somebody who reads science a whole lot. He's, he's not a big reader. And you documented that in your book. That he, he won't read stuff that you give him, which to me is a, is a very substantial flaw as a leader you need to read. And as his uh, secretary of defense, uh, Mattis, said, you need to read hundreds of books to become functionally literate. And President Trump, from all accounts, is, is not somebody who's read probably any in recent memory. Well, look, I'd only disagree with you on that point. Then then what about all the people in the world that learn differently? Like what I also address in the book is that he was like a sponge in terms of listening to people. He would rather get the information by listening to people than reading a book. That is a, a basic way of, of uh, you know, being educated that goes to people across, you know, the world. People have different ways of learning. And that was his mechanism of doing it. So yeah, I disagree with that. I mean, could he read? Of course he could read. Did he want to read? Not necessarily. He would rather sit with five advisors rather than read their 20 page papers and get to the crux of what really mattered. He was able to do that by soaking it up, you know, like a sponge by listening rather than reading. Many well, people do that. Well, I think if if uh, the results were that he was making good decisions I might agree with that point that certain people are auditory learners, but I felt like with the pandemic, which is a a great case in point, he was not learning. He was not following the advice of experts. I mean, just wearing a mask, that alone, he should have been supporting, encouraging, and having everybody take that seriously could have saved thousands of lives. And making it into a political point, hey, not wearing a mask and making it kind of machismo, I don't have to wear a mask, got a lot of people sick and a lot of people probably died as a result of that. And to me, that's a complete abject failure of leadership on President Trump's part. Well, I think the biggest loser in that, honestly, are the scientists. And let's let's be, you know, if we're going to have this discussion, we need to be very... Uh, open and honest about it. And none of the scientists had any clue what was going on. How many reports? Well, did I, think you see that, I think the scientists said wear a mask and President Trump was basically saying, uh, no, I don't think you have to. And he would go parade around in public and had public events where he was not wearing a mask. And he was encouraging other people not to wear masks. And to me, that's unconscionable. I mean, you need to be protecting people. And as the leader, you need to make the tough decisions that protect people. He was not doing that. And that's failure. Period. Yeah, but look, there were plenty. Uh, the scientists, scientific community was not in unison on whether masks actually work. 
Take New York, for example. There are instances where huge enclaves of people wore masks and the infection rate went up by 85 percent with well, masks. Well, so do they, they work I think, work? I think the scientific community is pretty unified that they do work and protect both the person who's wearing them and the, the people around them. So I really don't think that's much in dispute. And this is where the divide occurs when we kind of politicize science to that extent where you're jumping on the side protecting President Trump in the face of science that is pretty clearly out there on the other side. But Rick, uh, we've got to wrap this interview up. I've enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate you coming on the show and and talking to us about your book and your experiences uh, working with President Trump and in politics in general. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, maybe have you on the show in the future. Matt, thanks very much. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Matt Matter and Unite and Heal America on KABC 790. Look forward to having you back next Saturday. This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.